open with me to Matthew chapter 6 today. We're going to continue on in Matthew chapter 6. And before we get that, we're going to take a little bit of time, as we have been doing every week. We're in the, series, the season of transition. You know, our name as a church has been Destiny Church for a little over 20 years, 23 years to be exact. And uh, the Lord has placed it on our hearts. Uh, it's time for uh, a new way to represent our church uh, to the community. That's what the name of the church is. It's, it's how we represent ourselves to the community, to the world. And the name that we've settled on after much prayer and seeking the Lord and, and hearing from Him is Christ is King Church. And so we're, we're looking forward to uh, really the first Sunday that we celebrate that together and that'll be the, the 17th of September here, coming up in just a few weeks. But as we're moving towards that, as we're looking towards that, uh, making changes, you've probably seen some changes here and there on our website, et cetera, et cetera, trying to get everything ready to go for the 17th. Uh, we have been sharing with you some, some key passages, some key scriptures. And yes, we're going to go to Matthew 6 for the sermon today, but I want to share with you a verse today from Acts chapter 2. And this is Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. This is uh, after the Holy Spirit fell and Peter stands up and he, he preaches really the first proclamation of the gospel. And, and just one excerpt of that is found in Acts 2 and starting in verse 32. Peter says, this Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you, you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David, and here he's quoting from a passage of scripture that God used David to write in Psalm 110.1. And he says, David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, and here he quotes that passage... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 36, this is the conclusion, the culmination of everything he's been preaching. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Listen, Jesus is not just Savior, and Abraham just said that a few minutes ago while we were taking communion. He's not just Savior. He's also Lord. This was the message that the apostles preached, that Christ is Lord, that Christ is King. This is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins, that he rose again. But now having been risen and, and ascended, he is exalted as King of Kings. And Lord of Lords. And so in addition to, to the name of the church declaring that message, that ancient message, that first message that Christ is King, we wanted to, to also uh, create for us as a church uh, a symbol, an icon, a logo, a crest that would encapsulate this idea so that every time we could see it, we could remember the message that Christ is king. And so we put together this cross with a crown. And the cross and the crown, of course, remind us that, that Christ, who died, rose again and is exalted now. And he is king of kings, the crown representing not just the crown of thorns, 
but the crown as king of kings and lord of lords. And so you'll, you'll see this around. It'll be on, you know, on, I think there's a t-shirt out there somewhere that has this crest on it. We're going to try and stick this as many places as we can to remind us that every time we see this, that Christ is king. Now you'll notice that the cross is done in quite an interesting style. Someone saw it and they said, is that hair? Is the cross growing hair? Is it hairy? (laughs) No, it's not a hairy cross. I want to show you that even the style of cross that we chose, even that should serve to us a reminder that Christ is king. I want to go to this next slide. It's a page of text. Does anybody recognize this uh, page of text this morning? Anybody uh, speak Latin here uh, this morning? Anybody read that? I know it's really small. This text is the first page of Martin Luther's 95 thesis. In 1517, Martin Luther uh, nailed this page of text to the door of the castle at uh, Wittenberg, Germany... And the, the 95 theses were 95 ways that the church was not submitted to the word of God. And, and in this way, the church had become a tyrant. The church had set itself up as king, not submitted to the word of God. And so the... A cry of the Reformation was sola scriptura, scripture alone. Scripture alone is the final authority in all matters. It's not the church alone, it's scripture alone. It's not the church that is king, it is Christ that is king. And so this this 95 thesis, it, it, it opens with this phrase, I know you can't read it there, but the first word is dominus. That's a decorative uh, D there from the Latin language. If you go to the next slide, you'll see that the cross shape that we've taken was taken from that first word of the uh, Protestant Reformation, the 95 Thesis, and it is the word dominus, and it's a decorative representation of that word, and that's where that shape of that cross comes from. Now, the first line of the 95 Thesis in Latin, I know none of us speak Latin here today, but it is Dominus at Magister Noster Isis Christus, our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. And so even, we wanted even the the look of the cross, even the shape of the cross to remind us That Christ is our Lord and our Master. That he is our King. And so Acts 2.36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. We live in an age of uncertainty. Uncertainty about everything. We live in an age where the predominant doctrine, philosophy of our culture is that you can't know anything for certain. That there is no such thing as truth, there is no such thing as absolute truth, and if there was, you could never know or discover what that is. This postmodern thought. We live in an age where people say they have their own truth, 
What's true for you might not be true for me. But the gospel message is that you would know for certain that God has raised Christ from the dead and that Christ is both Lord and King. King of kings and Lord of lords. And so this crest, every time you see this, it's designed to remind us that Christ is King. There is the cross. There is the crown. It's stylized there in that word from the 95 thesis, dominus, which means Christ is Lord. It's from the Reformation where the driving force of the Reformation was sola scriptura. We've got to get back to the word of God, to the word of Christ the King. And so when you find that on whatever we stick it on, and we're going to stick it on everything, remember, remember Christ is king. Amen? That wasn't my sermon. That was just a little announcement for you this morning. So at Matthew chapter 6, uh, we'll be in this morning, if you'll flip over there with me. Now, we're looking at this passage again. We looked at it last week, but I wanted to look at it again this week because in the providence of God, as we're looking at uh, moving as we're moving into this season, a, a new season of our church with a new name, uh, in God's providence, we're in this passage that talks about seeking first the kingdom of God. It wasn't our plan. It wasn't my plan. Nobody planned this out that we would be looking at this passage in this season. But as we looked at it last week, I just really felt again we needed to, to, to pause and to wait and to just saturate and to meditate on this truth here a bit longer. And so Matthew chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 25. Therefore I tell you, this is Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious, don't worry about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you of not much, much more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed. Like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, don't worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, that's, that's those who are not in covenant with God, those who are outside of the, the promises of God. The Gentiles, they seek after all of these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. These are the words of 
God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord, in our time here together. I pray that you would press them down deep into our heart, Lord, that we would live as your people. Not, not living like those outside of your covenant blessings, but Lord, you have redeemed us. You have called us by name. You have forgiven us, forgiven us of our sins. You have clothed us in your righteousness. You have filled us with your spirit and you have made us promises, promises in your word. And you have given us instructions on how to live a life for you. Not chasing after everything that this world might have to offer, but, but living for eternity, living for you and for your glory. Lord, that's why you made us. That's why you've created us. That's why you have saved us and redeemed us. That we would glorify you, that we would show forth your glory everywhere we are, in our family, in at work, and in and, and recreation, and, and everywhere we go, in everything that we do, that we would bring you honor and that we would bring you glory. Lord, that's why you've created us. That's why you have redeemed us. That's what you mean when you say to seek first your kingdom. Help us in our time together in your word to have a new resolve to, in 2023 and beyond, in San Antonio and beyond, in this community and beyond, to seek first your kingdom and to see your kingdom grow and expand right here, right now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As I mentioned, we did look at this passage last week, and so I'm not going to go over everything that I, we did last week. But if you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to go on our YouTube, uh, see that sermon, as this one definitely builds upon that one. But let's look at verse 33 here again. It says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This verse is of such monumental importance to us. Last week I summarized it as saying that the kingdom of God is not in opposition to every other area of our life. That we don't have to sacrifice our families to seek first the kingdom of God. That we don't have to sacrifice our, our occupation or our education or, or anything like that to seek first God's kingdom. But that in our family, when we submit ourselves to God's word, that we are seeking the kingdom of God. Likewise at work, likewise in education, likewise in our relationship, likewise in every area of life... When we seek to submit our lives and our thoughts and our actions and our words to the word of God, to the word of the king, that that's what it means to seek first the kingdom. That the kingdom is not in opposition to every other area of life. It's the kingdom, it's the, the purpose of Christ to infiltrate and to rule in every area of life. And so I shared with you the phrase last week, all of Christ for all of life. All of Christ for all of life. It's not just Jesus our Savior, it's Jesus our Lord. It's not just when I pray and when I read my Bible and when I go to church that, that I submit myself to the Word of God. No, it's my whole life. It is all of Christ for all of life. That's what it means to seek first the kingdom. And here in this one verse, Jesus our Lord distills down for us the sum total of the Christian life. This is how we are to live as followers 
of Christ. He, he makes it so abundantly clear. There's no question about it. He doesn't say, if you can get around to it, if you have enough time in your schedule, if you think it's a priority, if you're called to the ministry, he doesn't qualify this at all in any way. But he makes an overarching statement for all of his people, of which you and I are a part, amen, to seek, not second, third, or all the way down there at the bottom of the list, but to seek first, seek first the kingdom of God. This is what we as Christians are to be about. Now, can we all agree on that here this morning? Can, can we agree that this is what Jesus is saying when he says to seek first the kingdom of God? Can we agree that he's saying that this is how to live your life? Amen? So then if, if this is what we agree to and we see that, okay, I recognize that. Yet it's been my observation that instead of these words being the front and foremost in our hearts and in our minds as we live our lives, they are often an afterthought. They're often an afterthought at best. More often they are overlooked, forgotten. And it's not only here that Jesus talks about the kingdom. It's not just this one weird place in this obscure text. No, the whole Gospels, all of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are permeated with the language of the kingdom of God. In Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew alone, in 28 chapters, 55 times the kingdom is mentioned. 55 times in Matthew's Gospel. This is the, the dominant theme. If you'll flip back to just Matthew chapter 1, it, it begins with, the claim about the kingdom of God. The very first verse of the very first chapter of the New Testament begins with this claim. The book of the genealogy, that's the Genesis. The book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. Of Jesus Christ. Again, Christ is not his last name. It's, it, Christ was not Joseph's last name, and so they wrote it on Jesus' birth certificate. Christ is a title. Christ is the, the word for Messiah. It is the word for the Savior, the Deliverer, the King. And so he is making a claim here in the very first verse of the very first chapter of the New Testament that Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the King in the kingdom of God. The very beginning of, of the New Testament is all about the kingdom. When you go to Matthew chapter 2, what do we find? After Jesus is born, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, kings, from the east come to Jerusalem saying, where was that little baby born in the manger? We saw a verse about it in Isaiah and they put it on a Hallmark card and we want to come and we want to see that little baby, that cute little baby. No. What do they say? Where is he who is born king of the Jews? A king has been born and we have come to see him. 
We saw his star. We've, we've, we've received his word. We're following the star that tells us about this king. And we have come to worship him. We have come to lay our crowns at his feet. Because he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. It says when, when King Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Before Jesus could even say mama or dada, he's putting fear in the hearts of these tyrants. Because the kingdom of God lays claim above all the kingdoms of this world. John the Baptist, chapter 3, John the Baptist comes preaching. And what is the message that he is preaching, John the Baptist, in the wilderness? Repent. For the kingdom of heaven, that is the kingdom of God, is at hand. It is here. It's about to break in to history. In chapter 4, when Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness, what does he tempt him with? What does he tempt Jesus with in Matthew chapter 4? Verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said, Begone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. He, he tempted Jesus with the kingdoms of the world. You see, Jesus came to purchase the kingdoms. But he wasn't going to do it by bowing down and worshiping Satan like Adam did, who was given dominion in the garden. Jesus was going to take back what the enemy stole by going to the cross and defeating him there. Defeating death by dying and rising again. He, he wasn't going to, to take the kingdoms by submitting to Satan. He was taking back the kingdoms by submitting himself to the Father's will as revealed in his word. And so Jesus comes out of the wilderness and what's the message that he preaches? Matthew 4 verse 17, from this time Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In verse 23, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel, the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Matthew chapter 5, we've seen the kingdom over and over again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Whoever relaxes the commandments will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus taught us to pray as we've been praying the Lord's Prayer together every day at 3 o'clock. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I don't think it's an accident that the, the way in which Jesus taught us to pray would remind us every day that we are to be living and seeking after his kingdom. His kingdom and his righteousness your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so this emphasis, and as we go forward, it's only going to intensify this emphasis on the kingdom of God. 
Which again leads us to the question, well, why if it's so prominent, why if it's so... What's another word for prominent? My my thesaurus just blanked out on me. If it's everywhere, if it's so prevalent, thank you. If it's just over and over and over again. Why has it become such an afterthought for so many Christians? If we all agree that Jesus says, seek first the kingdom... Why are we who are here today and even Christians who are outside of this room today in our culture, we would agree that Jesus says we should seek first the kingdom. Why is this so often neglected? Especially when Jesus attaches one of the best promises in the whole Bible to this. If you do this, all these other things will be added unto you. What a promise that our Lord makes. That if we will seek first his kingdom, that he will meet all of our needs. You don't got to worry about where your next meal is going to come from. You don't got to worry about what you're going to wear. All of this thing. The world is chasing after that. And they feel our, they're worried about it. They're preoccupied about it. Because they're not related to the father who is in heaven. They're not a, a son and daughter of the, the king of kings and the lord of lords. But if we will only seek first the kingdom, the promise attached to this is all these things will be added unto you. What a promise! Why is this neglected? Well, I've got three reasons for us this morning. Three reasons why I think this passage is often overlooked and neglected. And in answering this question and in looking at these three reasons, my hope is to press into your heart an understanding and a desire to seek first the kingdom of God. The first reason that these, uh, this kingdom principle, this kingdom text, this thought of the kingdom is overlooked, the first reason, I think, is simply because we live in the United States of America. And what do I mean by that? Well, by the, by what I mean by that is We don't live in a kingdom. We don't live in a kingdom. Our our government structure is not one of a king and his kingdom. It's not a monarchy. So so unless you've immigrated here from some place that is ruled by a king, you've never really lived in a kingdom. We live in a constitutional republic. And because we're Americans... We kind of look down on the idea of a king and a kingdom, don't we? Let's be honest. We despise the idea of living under a king or a monarchy. We fought a war over it. We're all about independence. Right? Self-determination. The 4th of July, fireworks and apple pie. That's what we're about. I'm waiting for some amens on that, you know. And there's nothing wrong with 4th of July, fireworks and apple pie. I celebrate those things. And I, I thank God for our country. And I thank God for the way it's set up. I think it's great and wonderful. I'm not dogging America at all. But what I am saying is that we, because we don't live in a kingdom, we don't think in kingdom terms. It's a category that's not well formed in our mind of how to think. 
In fact, there's this meme that goes around that I think is hilarious. And it comes up every time there's any kind of news about the royal family in Britain that somebody will post this meme and it says something to the effect of, I stopped caring about the royal family in 1776. For the rest of you, 1776 <laughs> was when we declared our independence from England. Okay. So we have this thought in our mind, isn't a king in a kingdom, isn't that an inferior system of governance? Didn't we come up with something better? Kings and kingdoms, that's so first century. Kingdom, kingdoms, look, we're modern, we're evolved. We have a constitution. We're governed by the law. Great, I, I love our system of government. Nevertheless, we have to grapple with this fact. Nevertheless, God chose to redeal, reveal. God chose. He could have revealed his redemptive purpose in terms of anything. And what he chose to reveal his redemptive purpose in terms of is a king with a kingdom. A king with a kingdom. And this is a significant point. We shouldn't just gloss over this. What this means is that for us to begin to understand and comprehend what God is doing and what his will is, we have to think and meditate on this idea of a king and God's kingdom. Jesus said to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so if we're going to be able to fulfill that and to fulfill God's purpose for our lives... It's going to require us to recover for our lives a concept of the kingdom of God. That's the first reason. I think it's just simply by virtue of the fact that we've never lived under a king. We've never lived under a monarch. We kind of look down on it. We kind of think it's tyrannical. And we just don't want anything to do with it. And, and we, of course, know that in America the government could never be tyrannical. Right? Never. They would never declare that you can not leave your homes and you have to wear a piece of cloth on your face that does nothing. They would never do that. They would never do that. They would never declare that you can't gather with God's people and worship God. No, no, a constitutional republic would never do that. Yeah. So let's not be so arrogant. Look, I'm thankful. Again, I'm thankful. I'm not dogging on our country at all. At all. But by virtue of the fact that we have never lived in a kingdom, we don't think in kingdom terms. That's the first one. The second, the second reason why sometimes this is overlooked is sometimes, as God's people, we are unconsciously kingdom-minded. What do I mean by that? I mean that we live in a kingdom way and we're just not aware of it. We're not thinking of it in terms of the kingdom of God. And that is simply by virtue of the fact that we have God's Spirit alive inside of us. We've been filled with God's Spirit. We've been redeemed. We've been called out of the world. We've been washed clean. And because God's Spirit is alive inside of us, we have a desire to obey God and to obey His Word. 
And so we find ourselves living in terms of the kingdom of God, but we're not consciously aware of it. Let me give you a few examples of this. The first would be if you give to world missions. If you give to world missions and, and Destiny Church, Christ is King Church, we have historically given and supported world missions at a very high level. Now, giving to world missions is very kingdom-minded because you, practically speaking, you who give towards these missionaries, towards the work that they're doing in nations you'll never go to, with people that you'll never meet, when you give towards that, you're thinking, you're acting in terms of the kingdom of God. Because practically speaking, of what benefit is it to you to send money for them to run a soccer program in Mexico? How does that benefit you? Well, in practical terms, there is no practical benefit. Can we agree to that? But there is a spiritual benefit. You, you see the spiritual value. And when you do that, you are living in terms of the kingdom of God. And you are thinking in terms of the kingdom of God. Even though you might not be conscious of it. You might not be thinking, well, Christ is king and he's king over all the earth. And, and he has called me to expand his kingdom in the world. And so, therefore, I'm going to support these missionaries that are doing that. You might not be thinking in those terms. But because you have the spirit of God alive inside of you. He transforms your heart and he, he helps you to conform your behavior to the values of the kingdom of God, even if you're not conscious of it. Other examples we could point to would be when you seek to obey God's word. When you seek to obey God's word. This is something that God's spirit produces in our hearts. You know who doesn't want to obey God's word? People who are not born again. People who do not have the Spirit of God alive inside of us, inside of them. Now, I know that none of us will perfectly obey God's word. We will all fall short. And thank God we have the advocate, the, the man, Jesus Christ, who's at the right hand of the Father, con constantly interceding on our behalf. And that when we go to him in faith, confessing our sins, asking for forgiveness, he promises that our sins are forgiven. Nevertheless, he leads us into a greater desire to conform our lives to his word. Part of the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, is that he is writing his law upon our hearts. So the law is not just this external tablets of stone creating pressure on us from the outside, but we have the spirit of God alive on the inside that is leading us, convicting us to obey the word of God. Now that is very kingdom-minded because Christ is king and his word is the law. We want to submit to his word. But you might not be thinking of it in terms of the kingdom. And so part of the reason why, and, and I think, you know, I'll admit, I think this is a good thing that because we have the spirit of God, we live in a kingdom way even if we're not thinking in terms of the kingdom of God. I think that's a good thing. But I do also think that we need to, in every area of our lives, live and, and, and behave and uh, uh, have values that are explicitly kingdom-minded. It would be better if we understood things in terms of the kingdom of God versus just simply, well, I, I think this is what I should do and... 
I just have the Lord telling me in my heart, that's good. But it would be better if we understood our lives in terms of the kingdom. Why do I say that? Well, because that's how Jesus taught us to live and to act. This is where Jesus puts the emphasis. And number three, the third reason, the first being that we're Americans, 1776, and King James can go take a bath. Okay, that's that one. Uh, number two is by virtue of the fact that we're God's children, he has redeemed us, he's filled us with his spirit, we unconsciously oftentimes live and, and act in terms of the kingdom without thinking about it. But number three, and this is, a, this is an issue that, that I think is the core of what we see as a lack of kingdom thinking and living, is that we, and when I say we, I'm talking about the, the sort of the American church, the the. The, the, the Christian culture that, that the church has here in uh, America, that we have a shrunken gospel. We have a shrunken gospel. When I was a kid, one of my favorite movies was Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. I used to watch that movie over and over again. I loved that movie. But here today, in 2023, as we look at Christianity, evangelicalism in America, in the Western nations, I think we could honestly say, honey, we have shrunken the gospel. We have shrunken the gospel. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that we have reduced the gospel to a message of personal salvation. We've reduced the, the gospel, the good news, which Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. We've reduced it to the gospel, the message of personal salvation. And so we've made it all about you. We've made the gospel all about you. All about you getting into heaven when the gospel is really all about him and what he has done and what he is doing and what he will do. That's the good news. The good news is all about him, what he did, what he's doing, and what he's going to do. And when we make the gospel all about personal salvation, we don't make it all about him, but we make it all about you. The reason why that is, is because that's what sells books. That's what fills stadiums. Because, I don't know if you know this, people are selfish. People are self-centered. People think about themselves more than anybody else. And so when you come and you say, guess what? God's all about you. People think, wow, that sounds pretty good. I am too. <laughs> Me and God, we line up great. But the gospel is not God's all about you. The gospel is all about him. So we've shrunken the gospel. We've taken one part of the gospel, a, a, a significant part, an important part, and we've made it the whole thing. We've made it the whole thing. 
Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And we in our pulpits preach the gospel of personal salvation. There is a big difference. Now don't hear what I'm not saying. Yes, there is salvation in Christ. There is salvation only in Christ. The only way that we can be reconciled to God is through faith and repentance in Christ. That's it. There's only one way of salvation. There's only one way to have our sins forgiven. And it is through the shed blood of Jesus. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. It is Jesus. It is only Jesus. Amen. But did you know that line? There's only one name given among men. Under heaven by which we must be saved. Did you know that line was a quote? Did you know Peter when he preached that message in Acts chapter 4? Did you know he was quoting something when he said that? Do you know who he was quoting? Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus had declared himself the son of God. And said there is no other name under heaven by which you can be saved save Caesar Augustus. And when Peter stands up and preaches, he says, nope, it's not Caesar, but it's Christ. We hear this message, there's no other way that we can be saved, it's only through Jesus, and yes and amen. But the message they were preaching was aimed directly at every other claim to lordship, to kingship, to authority that is above Christ. And we've reduced it down to, 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 to stripping it from its context and to making it all about us. When we are a part of it, Christ is redeeming us, but he's also redeeming us in terms of redeeming the nations, re redeeming all of creation. Jesus is our Savior, but he's not just the Savior of our little heart. Jesus is Savior and Lord of the entire universe. That is the gospel of the kingdom, that Christ is King. Matthew chapter 8, flip over there with me quickly. I know you know this, we've looked at this a lot. But again, this claim, this final claim that Jesus makes... After having defeated Satan and sin and death and hell on the cross and having risen on the third day in victory, about to ascend to the right hand of the, of the Father, Jesus declares, verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus makes claim to authority, to power above every other claim to authority and power. In heaven, and, and yeah, we all agree on that. Yeah, Jesus is Lord of heaven. He's up there ruling and reigning. But Jesus doesn't stop at heaven. Jesus lays claim to all authority on earth. On earth. Too often we, we reduce the gospel to getting people from earth into heaven. 
But the gospel of the kingdom teaches and preaches how we might have heaven manifest on earth. It's not just about getting people from heaven in, from, from earth into heaven. It's about seeing the kingdom of God manifest, the kingdom of heaven manifest here on earth. And so Jesus says, because I have all authority in heaven and on earth, because it has been given unto me, go therefore and make disciples, followers of all nations. Yes, you and I have salvation in Christ, and yes, you and I have our sins forgiven. But the scope of the work is that the nations would be discipled. That the nations would be discipled. And how do we disciple the nations? By baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And by teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That we, we preach and we teach what Christ has commanded And lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now the question arises, is there anything in all creation that exists outside of this statement? When Jesus says, all authority, is there any other authority above his? Is he leaving some enclave out there where, where, okay, yes, I have all authority here in the church. But when we talk about realm of government and we talk about education and we talk about out there in politics, no, 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 Christ doesn't have authority there. Is that what Jesus says? He says all authority in heaven and on earth. And so there is, there is no power, there is no authority that exists that is above Christ's authority and power. Does he say that this is only confined to a certain geographical area? Or or to a certain nationality of people? No, in fact, he says it's for all nations. All nations. That there is no nation that should not be discipled. And, And what is it that we disciple them in terms of all that he has commanded? His law, his Word. Christ in this statement lays claim and authority to everything. And so if anything is not submitted to the Lordship of Christ, it is living in rebellion against the King. And those who live in rebellion against the King will not fall under Christ's blessing, but fall under his judgment. So Christ lays claim to everything. Uh, The apostles, they pick up on this message. They begin to preach and to proclaim it. If you look at Ephesians chapter 1, just real quickly, real quickly, Ephesians chapter 1, today this passage of Paul preaching, or or the, the message he's writing to the Ephesians. Just look specifically at one verse here today. Chapter uh, 1, verse 10. That in Christ, God set forth, this is the end of verse 9. In Christ, God set forth a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, 
things in heaven and things on earth. That the, the purpose of the gospel, the gospel message, is that through Christ, God is bringing everything back to himself. Everything back to himself. As it was in, supposed to be in the Garden of Eden before Adam and Eve fell, where they were to have dominion and to uh, uh, have, have dominion over the, the, the world and to, to cultivate the world in terms of God's rule and reign. Now in Christ, we who preach and to pr proclaim his kingdom message are sent out to turn the world into a God-glorifying, God-exalting, Christ-centered culture. And we start with ourselves, our lives. We start with our families. We have it in our church. If we have it a place at work where we can begin to do that, wherever we have ourselves any kind of authority, we are cultivating it in terms of the kingdom of God, the lordship of Christ. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Flip over to Colossians chapter 1 real quickly. A couple pages over in your Bible, Colossians chapter 1. Very similar idea, very similar statement. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 20. Through him, that is Christ, verse 20. Through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, the all things he mentions here that he is uniting to himself, if you look at verse 15, verse 16, it, it lists some of the things that, that have been created by God, things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of his church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead. That in everything, in everything, he might be preeminent. It's not just everything in the church. It's everything in all creation that Christ would be exalted. This was God's original plan for humanity, that everything we make, everything we create, would exalt and glorify God. And now in Christ, he has sent his people out in terms of doing that, in everything, that Christ would be exalted and glorified. For in him, 19, the full, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Listen, Jesus didn't just come to save individuals. He didn't just come to save people. He didn't just come to be the Lord of your heart. Jesus came to save nations. Jesus came to save government. Jesus came to save education. Jesus came to save the arts and entertainment. Jesus came to reconcile everything back to himself in terms of his kingdom rule and his kingdom reign. 
We have to rediscover a kingdom view of all of life. We must seek to advance the kingdom of Christ in every area of thought and life. All of Christ for all of life. On earth as it is in heaven. This is what we are to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the claims that Jesus makes about the kingdom of God, his kingdom, is that they are total, that they are all-encompassing, that there is nothing outside of what he lays claim to. And you and I, we have to rediscover that. We have to rediscover that and to live in terms of that because Christ calls us to seek first the kingdom of God. And if we are not doing that, we are not living the way that Christ has commanded us to live. One last passage. I have to show you this and then we'll close this morning. It's Acts chapter 17. Flip back to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 17. This is Paul's second missionary journey. He's been a few different places. He's preached Christ is king. There have been some people who received the message and other people who started riots. And so Paul has been going from town to town starting riots. Okay? Being, uh, he, he's, not, he's not throwing bricks, but he's preaching the word and then other people are throwing bricks to shut him up. And so then Paul is so hated that they start chasing him from town to town. So wherever he goes to proclaim the gospel, there's a group of people that follow him that begin to stir up crowds to persecute him that they would, uh, if they couldn't kill him, they could at least drive him out and to silence him. Now, in verse uh, of, of chapter 17, in the middle of this riot... Let's look here at verse 6. The people who are rioting, they are shouting. And the, the, the accusation that they make about Paul, they say this, they're shouting this, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason, that's somebody who was part of that town, Jason has received them, brought them into his home. He's, he's, he's part of this. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. This is the message that the apostles preached. They didn't just preach a message of personal salvation. They preached a message of the kingdom of God. And these people got it. They understood it. The problem with our world is we have, we have reduced it. We have shrunken the gospel down to Jesus. Just wants to be the Lord of your heart. And just let him in. He's there knocking. And if you'll, if you'll give him permission, he'll come into your heart. And you'll get to go to heaven one day. And that's it. But that's not the message that the apostles preached. That's not the message that turned the world upside down. Listen, that message won't turn anything upside down because it's not the gospel message. The gospel is that there is another king and it's, it's not Caesar, it is Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ. 
Christ is king. They heard it, they understood it, and it turned their world upside down. And if we want to turn our world upside down for Christ, we must preach that message as well. In every way that we live our lives, we are saying and we are preaching Christ is king. Look at verse 30 of chapter 17. This is another city, another place, another message, but Paul is preaching, verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now, but now, he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. In righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is the message that they preached. That Christ is king. He is risen from the dead. That God is now calling all people who live in rebellion against the king and the word of the king. To humble themselves to repent, to turn from their sins, to trust in Christ and to live in terms of the kingdom of God and that there is a day appointed by which Jesus Christ will judge the world. The Bible says that Jesus is returning to judge the living and the dead. It's the church's job. It is you and I. It is our job to live in terms of the kingdom of God and to preach and proclaim the kingdom of God. We will all stand before God one day and give an account. That's what the Apostle Paul says. Everybody you know, everybody you have ever known will stand before God one day. And the message we are to preach is when you stand before God on that day, whose righteousness will you be clothed in? Your own righteousness, which is as filthy rags, Or by faith will you have received the righteousness of Christ? And if you are in any position of authority or power, God has given that to you so that you might promote righteousness and that you might de-elevate, that you might push down evil in the world. The church is to proclaim that message everywhere because Christ is king. And we're not doing that. We're not doing that the way that we need to be doing that because we don't think in terms of the kingdom of God. So how do I land this plane? I don't know. All right. But we, we, we got to seek first the kingdom. We got to think on the kingdom. We got to meditate on the kingdom. We, we got to live in terms of the kingdom. We got to be ready to preach and proclaim the kingdom. Christ is king. He is king of kings and he is lord of lords and he is returning one day. We live in anticipation of that and the great promise that Jesus has made to all of his people is that if we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, all these things will be added to us. We don't have to worry about anything else if we'll put our shoulder to the plow and get about the business of the kingdom of God. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that uh, you will have used it this morning and made it beneficial in the life of your people. You are our king. You are our savior. You are our Lord. 
You're not only our king, you're the king of kings. You're not only our Lord, you're the Lord of lords. Help us to live and to think and to act in terms of that reality for your praise and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.